This podcast is sponsored by Cloud Optimizer. As a business owner or IT manager, are your cloud investment costs going up and you don't know why? It's time for Cloud Optimizer. As you migrate your business to the cloud, what you're spending and why you're spending it can get a little hazy. But Cloud Optimizer clears up the mystery and puts the cloud to work for you. Cloud Optimizer starts by analyzing usage patterns, right-sizing resources, leveraging discounts you may not be aware of, implementing automation, and much more. And by reducing unnecessary expenses and maximizing performance, Cloud Optimizer guarantees you a savings of five times what you spend for their service. As you utilize cloud-based services more and more, you don't have to lose sight or control of your spend. You can stay agile, streamline your costs, and optimize your performance, plus save significant money with Cloud Optimizer. Make the cloud work for you with Cloud Optimizer. Get a free assessment and find out how much you can save by going to cloudoptimizer.com. Go to cloudoptimizer.com for your free assessment. That's cloudoptimizer.com. There was a part of me that at times during my life as a stand-up where I felt like I, I, I think I might complete this whole career and stay anonymous the whole time, which feels pretty bad. This is Death, Sex, and Money. You don't have to kill me. The show from WNYC about the things we think about a lot. This is about you and me, and we're not good anymore. And need to talk about more. I want that money, Lebowski. I'm Anna Sale. It took W. Kamau Bell a while to get his footing in the comedy world. There were times I felt like, I'm doing comedy, but I'm not really a comedian. Like, if people at parties ask me, what do you do? I would not want to say comedian because I, could, I had no proof. If it was possible to chop off the first half of my career and just do the second half, I'd feel great about it. But I think the first half had to happen so I could get to the second half and be like, well, I have wasted a lot of time here. His 20s came and went. It wasn't until he was in his mid-30s when he was living in San Francisco that things finally started to take off. As soon as I really focused in and honed in on, like, I want to talk about race and racism, I want to write a one-man show about it, and I don't care if I become famous or whatever, I just want to do something that makes me happy, you know, things started to happen. Chris Rock saw that show. It was called the W. Kamau Bell Curve, ending racism in about an hour. America wouldn't be America without black people. I looked it up on the internet. You know how much of America's pop culture we're responsible for? All of it. <laughs> Chris Rock teamed up with Kamau to create Totally Biased, a late-night TV variety show that poked fun at lots of things, including politics and race. It debuted in 2012, and within a year, it went from weekly to five nights a week. That didn't last, though. It was canceled two months later. Kamau and his family, who had moved to New York for the show, decided to go back to the West Coast. We just needed to, we needed to center ourselves again. Like, after Totally Bias was canceled, the only reason we moved to New York was for that show. When that show was gone, we sort of existed in this place of, like, what, what are our lives here? We were living in an apartment that was rented by a guy who had a TV show. And suddenly, when that guy didn't have a TV show, it was like, we can't afford this apartment. Um, this apartment is actually sucking the money out that we got through Totally Biased. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, and so we were like, we have to go someplace where we can sort of like breathe. And I feel like the minute we got off the plane, we moved back out here, off the plane, like out of the airport, it was just like, oh, that's California. <laughs> and it just became like such a clear, like, this is, life is hard enough. <laughs> life has enough challenges. And especially with having a new kid, there are enough challenges in life without also feeling that the challenge of like, do we belong here? Growing up, Kamau had a lot of different hometowns. His parents split up when he was little. My mom moved around a lot. Uh, 
with a shorthand way of saying that is she was a black lady with opinions, so we had to move sometimes. She was like, you know, in academia, so she was working on like black newspapers and at one point flirted with becoming a black Muslim during the point where that was a thing and like really was in the, the more outwardly militant side of things. His dad settled in Mobile, Alabama, where Kamau spent most of his summers. He and his mom lived in a series of different cities, Indianapolis, Boston, then Chicago. I had to start making new friends again and really resented that and wanted, I think I wanted something familiar and Alabama was familiar. So I called an audible and and said, I want to move, live with my dad. My mom said, okay, even though she was heartbroken. and And was it you and your dad in the house, just the two of you? No, that was the other thing. It was a pretty big change because my dad was married, and uh, and and my step and my stepmom had a child who was, had a daughter who was a couple years younger than me. So it was like from going from a family where it's just me and my mom, which basically at that point it's just all about: Are you okay? I'm okay. Yeah. Are you okay? I'm okay. <laughs> to a to a nuclear family where it's like, as long as most people are okay, we're fine here. <laughs> <laughs> I, I joke about that with my wife all the time, that she comes from a much bigger family than I do. And I feel like it's like they really just average it out. Is, are yeah. most people fine? Then we're fine. And what's your what's your father do in Alabama? He, uh, like when I was a kid, he was, uh, what's that word, unemployed. And then later he sort of did the thing that a lot of Americans talk about, that he lifted himself up by his bootstraps. He got a job at the bank as a teller, as like probably the oldest teller in the history of a bank and at, like in his mid-30s and from there, he, you know, became like a manager at the bank, and then he started selling insurance, and he worked his way up to being the first, being pre- like vice president of an insurance company in Alabama, and then he became the insurance commissioner for the state of Alabama. So he's at this point, the guy that I remember when I was a kid is very different from the guy who he is now, and making a lot more money than when you were growing up. I'm oh, absolutely. Yeah, it's funny. But so which puts people in mind that I grew up with, like when they meet my dad, like I sort of grew up that way. It's like, no, I, this guy came later. I did not grow up with huh. the access to this money. I mean, I'm very proud of him while at the same time, like feel sort of separate from that. And when we have talks about money and things like that, it's very clear that I grew up with a different mentality that hmm. frustrates him. And how do you describe how you grew up? What's your mentality around money? Just that money is a, uh, you know, I don't know. Like, money's great, but I, I've never been in love with it. If I didn't have money, I just wouldn't. I wouldn't really trip out about it. Whereas my dad came to a point where he's like, "If if I don't have money, I'm going to uh, do everything I can to figure out how to make money." I think he took the uh, sort of the early Tiger Woods approach. Like, I'm just going to be better than everybody who's around me, and that's what happened. But I just have really never, you know, been in love with with money enough to do that, although now that I have two kids, I go, oh, I, I'm starting to see where that comes from. Huh. He, I mean, you know, he came from nothing, from, you know, from the nothing that is, that black people talk about when they talk about coming from nothing, and nothing in the Deep South, which is a whole new level of nothing, so. And the Southern Civil Rights Movement is happening around your father as he's growing up. Yeah, and I think, it, you know, it's happening around them, but I, they don't have stories of marching, or it's, I mean, I feel like there's that, there's those two different types of people in the South, the people who are like, we need to get out in the streets and march, and then there's people who are like, we need to keep our head down, and we will benefit from the marching, but we also need to show up at work tomorrow. We can't yeah. take the day off. Yeah. And I don't think it makes them any less, uh, I think there's just multiple ways to go about uh, freedom. Mm-hmm. I don't want to. I don't want to put my dad down. <laughs> like you know, like I, I, there's. It's easy to sort of put that into some sort of weird. Like, well, he didn't. Blah blah. But no, it's like I think the, I regularly when my, when I'm around my dad's crew of people, like the people he's worked with. There's regularly uh, 
you know, mostly black people, people of color who sort of look at me like your dad is the example that I look up to. And I feel like that's just as worthy as everything my mom has done. Yeah. I mean, to go from being a bank teller in your mid 30s to being insurance commissioner in Alabama. You know, yes. No. At the time, at the time, I, I, I had to joke in my act about how he was the highest ranked African American official in Alabama and the second highest ranked worked at a, a Kentucky Fried Chicken. <laughs> 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 now, that, that was a joke. I think I didn't do the research. I think it was a joke. Kamau may not have inherited his father's feelings about money, but he did get his height. His dad is six six. Kamau hit 6'4 in high school. Last year, after the deaths of Michael Brown and Eric Garner, he wrote in Vanity Fair about being a big black male. A BBM, he called it. I don't generally feel trapped by my circumstances, he wrote, but I do feel every bit of my 6'4-inch, 250-pound body and every bit of my black skin. That's something his mom taught him about from the time he was a small black boy. I remember a very specific time of us going to uh, like a drugstore, you know, and sort of us walking around the drugstore. And I'm like, you know, I'm probably seven, eight, nine years old, somewhere in the tent, at the age where I might leave the house by myself to go to the drugstore and buy a, you know, cracked magazine or something. And so I think she was like, well, when you do that, and she pointed at a guy, she goes, that's the store detective. He will follow you around. So don't pick anything up unless you intend to buy it. Don't browse with your hands, basically. And it wasn't like, if a store detective follows you, she pointed at the guy who was following us at the time. Hmm. And so I've gotten pretty good. And so when I started going to stores for myself, that's the thing I do. Like, I don't, you know, even to this day, I mean, I will pick things up if I'm not going to buy it. But I am aware of putting them down and also putting them down sometimes in a way that is like, I am putting this down. <laughs> uh, you know, like, sort of like, you know, whether it's on the camera or if I see somebody looking at me, look at this going back where I got it from. And, and and the thing I think when I talk about this, I'm aware that, you know, women, you know, as you know, will go through that same thing about but in a different but from a different side of things. I'm thinking about like, I don't want the cops to think I'm doing the wrong thing. Whereas you whereas I would imagine with my wife, I talked to my wife about it. She goes to the side from I don't want to end up in a bad situation because I'm not paying enough attention. Yeah. And so I just, you know, and I think a lot of this is from having these talks with my wife about this, and she's a white woman, and I'm a black guy, and there's a lot of, like, overlapping, like, thing, ways in which we experience the world that people wouldn't expect that we have a uh, connection over that. Well, that's really interesting that you say that, because one of the one of the other things you write is that because I'm a big black man, it's why I smile quickly. It's why I don't stand at full height. It's why I slouch and bend. And you're basically saying, here are the things I do to make you feel comfortable with my presence. Mm-hmm. And as a woman, I do that. I laugh at jokes that aren't funny to make men feel comfortable, you know. And it's interesting. Well, please to hear stop you doing that, that today. Please, please stop doing that today. All right. Yes. <laughs> no more. I mean, laughs. but you we'll still you still smile year. quickly. I mean, you know, it's still something that you do. Yeah. It's like yeah, it's it's certainly something that I do. There's the mask you put on for the outside world, and everybody does this on one level or another. It's just how how much do you enjoy wearing that mask is the question. And so I certainly put that mask on. And, you know, there's just all these ways in which out in the world that I that I sort of make sure that the world knows that I'm not I don't mean I'm not intending to pose a threat other than the threat that I am posing because of the body that I'm in. That idea of Kamal posing a threat simply because of the body he's in hit home last February. 
New at 6, the owner of a well-known cafe in Berkeley says what happened there is horrible, and he's sorry. Kamau was meeting his wife, Melissa, who's white, at a sidewalk cafe near his home. An employee saw him approach and attempted to shoo him away. Kamau was holding a book about racism, and it was his birthday. He wrote about this on his blog afterward, and it quickly became a local news story. Upon learning that Bell was married to one of the women, he says the employee apologized and said she thought he was trying to sell something to the women. Bell calls it textbook racism. The cafe fired the employee and in March co-hosted a public discussion in Berkeley about race and discrimination with Kamau and his wife. Coming up, Kamau talks about finding the balance between family and his career something his wife has also had to juggle. She just this past year uh, finished her doctorate in critical dance theory. She's a modern dancer, contemporary dancer, and she has an MFA in in, uh, experimental dance choreography, which means we're going to be rich. (laughs) We are gearing up for the first anniversary of Death, Sex, and Money next month. We are so excited. Thank you for listening. If you found the show last May or just recently. And you know, part of the idea of this show is that all of us have moments of transition in life when we're finding our way through. And then the story keeps going. So on the next episode, I catch up with Heidi Reinberg. She moved to New York as a young woman. And a year ago, I talked to her as she was getting ready to leave after 30 years because she'd gotten priced out of her neighborhood. She did leave. But now she's living two blocks from her old place in Brooklyn with a roommate. My roommate is a 25-year-old, so sort of back where I started. I was like, when I actually came to see her and I got, you know, found an internet listing, and when I actually came to meet her, I was like, oh my God, she's going to think I'm like Grandma Moses. And is this my life when I'm in my 50s? I'm going to be looking at roommates again. I've talked to a lot of people over the last year, and I want to know who else you're curious about. Which guest from the show do you need an update on? Email me at deathsexmoney at wnyc.org, and I'll bring you the latest about some of them this summer. I have a podcast recommendation for you. It's The Longest, Shortest Time from WNYC. Host Hillary Frank tells stories about what it's really like to be a parent. Longest, Shortest Time was also recently on a list in Salon, along with Death, Sex, and Money, of seven sexy, feministy podcasts you might want to listen to. So check out The Longest, Shortest Time wherever you get your podcast or on the WNYC app. This episode is brought to you by Fail Better, David Duchovny's new podcast with Lemonada Media. On Fail Better, David, who has experienced both low and high-profile failures throughout his life, explores the vast world of failure, how it holds us back, propels us forward, and ultimately shapes our lives. Each week, he will chat with guests like Ben Stiller, Bette Midler, and more about how our perceived failures have actually been our biggest catalysts for growth, revelation, and even healing. Through these conversations, he hopes listeners can learn how to embrace the opportunity of failure and fail better together. Fail Better is out now wherever you get your podcasts. We have had a lot of exciting new things to share with you about the show recently, but this might be some of our biggest news yet. 
Death, Sex, and Money is officially going to be live in New York City at the Tribeca Festival on June 11th. And I want to personally invite you to the live taping we'll be doing with the legendary journalist Kara Swisher. If you know Kara's work, you know her ability to get people to tell her things is unmatched. And she does it in her signature, hard-charging way. She's not afraid of things getting a little combustible. I have a slightly different interview style, so we're going to talk about that and play around with that in experimental ways that I think will make this a special show unlike any of our other live shows up to this point. And it's not often that I get to do a live Death, Sex, and Money show in New York, so I really hope to see you there. Whether you're in the city, on the East Coast, or just been looking for a reason to visit New York City, come on June 11th for this show. You can get tickets now at TribecaFilm.com slash Death, Sex, Money. We are so excited to see you there. This is Death, Sex, and Money from WNYC. I'm Anna Sale. Since Kamal's TV show Totally Biased was canceled in 2013, he stayed busy. He's taking his stand-up act on tour. He co-hosts a weekly podcast with Kevin Avery called Denzel Washington is the Best Actor of All Time, period. And he's been trying to figure out what's next. I want to release a comedy special because I want people who watch me on Totally Biased to know that I'm a comedian independent from that show. Hmm. So that a big part of that is ego. But, you know, like, okay, I I do a comedy special. What comes next? The thing that's always looking towards the next thing is about the fact that, like, I have two children. A TV show is a good way to help provide for your kids if you're in the entertainment industry. Uh, If I didn't have kids and I wasn't married, I don't know. There's a part of me that every now and again can envision myself uh, working at Starbucks and getting health benefits and being like, ah, this is good. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And and sort of doing comedy as it comes across my desk, you know, Uh, But that's not a responsible way to be a parent. I certainly take that seriously. I really appreciate the way you publicly grapple with this as a working father. Like your your blog post after you decided to cancel some tour dates recently, where you started by talking about the two birthday parties for four-year-olds that you had to attend. (laughs) (laughs) And you have this line, please forgive me, Kansas City, Des Moines, Omaha, Ferndale, and Cincinnati. I still love you. I just love my family more. Yeah. That was hard to write. It was it's scary. <laughs> it was, uh, when I looked at the schedule, I just realized how long I was going to be gone from home. And I was like, and my wife had just given birth. I was like, this is a disaster. Uh, uh, you know, I, I will come back and my kid won't, my kid won't bo- have bonded with me. Uh, you know, maybe my family have moved or changed the locks. Like, it just seems <laughs> like, you know, I yeah. can't call myself a good father and do all these things. And so, and it's really important to me to be a good parent and a, and a good father specifically. There's things about fatherhood that I think are, that I believe are important. And I feel bad that I'm not choosing it more. Like, I, I'm in town today for 48 hours. Like, I got in town yesterday at noon. I'm leaving tomorrow at noon to go back on the road. And I feel like, God, this sucks. You know, this, it's, and, and yet I can't wait to see the people in these cities, you know? Mm-hmm. My daughter Sammy knows work is being when Dada leaves. <laughs> like, so, like, it's like that. Like, she, I, this happened this morning. Uh, she, we were, we dropped her off at school, and they, you, they let the parents hang out for a few minutes so the kids can get adjusted. Not that my daughter needs that. She's like, bye. And we're looking <laughs> at, like, art on the walls and things they draw, and there's this picture that my daughter drew. And it was like – and she draws very representational pictures of her family, so there will often be three and now four people in them. And there was one with two, and I was like, who's that? And she goes, that's me and mama. And uh, and, Sam, and my wife goes, where's dad? She goes, he's at work. Hmm. And I was like, oh, <laughs> 
suddenly I hear, and the cat's in the cradle and the silver spoon. <laughs> I, I, I feel like there's some magic number that if I hit that magic number, like if I, that, where you go, oh, that's the money where you just, you know, that your interest takes care of everything. And I don't know that I will hit that number, but I, if, if at some point I look up and go, wait, that's, I just freak, that's the number. I think my ego at that point would be like, okay, we've done enough, you know. I mean, are there people who you talk about with it, like the and what is the actual number where you sit around and try I, to guess? You know, what me it is? and my friends talk about it, and I, you know, I'm, you know, I think if I had, you know, it's totally biased that when you're in a daily talk show like that, there's just a, the, the 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 finances change so dramatically. But when you're only in that for a year and a half, it very quickly goes back to not where exactly where you were, but where you're like, oh, this is like I'm, you know, I'm back in the work, I'm a working man again. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, like, I feel like I feel like if I, you know, it's like you have to. This is show business. You sort of everybody's trying to hit that vein of money, you know. A lot of the artists I admire, I've sort of noticed a uh, a thing about them. At some point, they go, "That's enough." Hmm. And like I and uh, you know, off the top of my head, uh, Bill Watterson from Calvin and Hobbes. Yeah, you know that he so he literally said, "That's enough." I mean, that sounds magical to me. To have done enough that the culture still remembers you. That whatever you created has created enough of a nut that you can sort of get – you can get through the next month and maybe he's doing other things. Who knows? But you don't have to be engaged in that in that hustle for more that is so seductive in the entertainment industry with like Bill Waterston. Like, don't you want to make plush toys and animated movies and a cartoon and a kid? And he went, no, nah, I got enough. Do you think you'll earn more money in 2015 than you did in 2014? Oh, wow. That's, that's such a funny, hard question. Um because 20, 2013 was totally biased. If you'd ask that, that was question when you were in rolling in it. Yeah. I was, yeah, my version of rolling in it, which which uh, Chris Rock might be like, oh, my God, we're broke. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> what happened? Uh, somebody's robbed me. But uh, And I only say that because I worked with him, not because I know his financial situation. Yeah. And, uh, you know, will I earn more money? That is my personal challenge of 2015 is to figure out a way to to earn more is to work hard enough to earn more money than I did in the previous year, but also still feel like I'm an attentive parent and husband. And if you if you figure that out, if you write a book, you'll be a gazillionaire because I think every parent in America would buy that book. <laughs> yeah, no, it's a it's a yeah. When you add parenting into it, just everything. I sometimes feel like I don't know if people without kids should be allowed to vote. <laughs> It really changes your perspective on the world in a big way. I don't know. Two groups of people I don't think should be allowed to vote. People without kids and billionaires. But that's just my um, – that's the platform I'm running on. Comedian W. Kamau Bell. Since we spoke, CNN announced that he's going to be hosting a new show called The United Shades of America. It's a race and culture-themed travel show set to premiere next year. I'll get an update from both Kamau and his wife, Melissa, at our upcoming live show in Brooklyn on May 8th. Death, Sex, and Money is a production of WNYC. The team includes Katie Bishop, Emily Boteen, James Ramsey, Caitlin Pierce, Zachary Mack, and Joe Plourd. The Reverend John Delore and Steve Lewis wrote our theme music. I'm on Twitter, at Anna Sale. The show is at Death, Sex, Money. We're also on Facebook, where we post pictures, show updates, articles we're reading and thinking about. Find Death, Sex, and Money there and like us. Finally, with all this up and down, Kamau is still getting used to the idea of being a celebrity. A camera guy jumped out with a video camera and he said, I'm from TMZ, I want to ask you some questions. And I started laughing. I'm like, 
is that where TMZ has gotten to? Like, to <laughs> like where I, you need to talk to me? <laughs> like, I was like, there's no way this is ever going to make TMZ unless it's a super slow TMZ news day. You know, certainly just watching Kim Kardashian walk through an airport is going to be more interesting than anything you have me say. I'm Anna Sale, and this is Death, Sex, and Money from WNYC. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to check out The Longest, Shortest Time, WNYC's podcast about the true stories of parenting today. Find it wherever you get your podcasts or on the WNYC app.